I didn't give much thought to what happens to me after death. Because I was never going to hell, no matter what I did. I never dwelled on my soul's perpetual rest. The conceit of heaven is that you fear God and an unfortunate demise. Christians seem to think hell is eternal, so one bad fuck up and you're burning with no redemption. There's a truth to the Trinity that every new selection has to face. We're going to die at the hands of someone else. Normal people die of diseases. They have heart attacks and cancer. Those who God selects for the Trinity don't even know the common cold. Matthew unknowingly wrote the Trinity's Creed. We're all meant to live by the sword. Thus, we die as we live. One day, someone will murder me. Perhaps it's already been decided who that will be. Does God or some sort of fate make that decision? Everyone born into this already has their fate decided for them in some way. When I first learned of my future, as indeterminate as it felt, resentment overtook my persona. I wanted to kill my father, destroy the empire he helped build, face down both God and Satan, as neither provided me with a path I could trek. Someone tells you that the entire reason you exist is to help bring an end to humanity, and your reaction is supposed to be thankful? The last two people I saw before my death were Birch and Murray Groan. As I recall, Murray tied me to a chair, Birch cut my tongue open, kicked me head first into the floor, and shot me in the face. However, it's not their voices I'm hearing. Death prevents us from feeling pain, dwelling on our sorrow, and experiencing what we once knew. I never got to consider that a man I once trusted like a father practically held me still while a little shit of a boy silenced me. While I did try killing Walter Groan and plotted the same fate for Murray, I can't ward off the realization that everyone I ever cared for betrayed me. The woman I loved, Lilith, manipulated me into helping Lucifer. My father, Charles, faked his death and flipped the Armageddon switch. I could take solace in Birch having killed him too, but that was yet another right taken from me. I deserve to kill my father. Most of my animosity managed to dwindle when I thought he was dead and Lilith was polluting my mind. My time of contemplation and the mental fortress of solitude concludes when the voices get closer, followed by a bark. I open my eyes, expecting to be back in Walter Groan's living room and there's a Boston Terrier pacing around me on a carpeted floor with furniture even Roseanne and Dan Connor wouldn't allow in their home. 
If all of the dander magnets and dogs weren't enough, the lower ceiling and CRT TV from 1995 would give me some indication I'm in the wrong house. The man and woman looking at me hold on to one another as if I'm an intruder ready to tie them upside down and torture their wrinkled skin with a thousand tiny razor cuts. Now many of Atlanta's broken windows and busted doorknobs had my boot prints on them, but I never hurt strangers in a ranch-style home built in the 1960s who didn't at least have some kind of hidden bankroll with Satan. Good morning, I say. Sorry, I, I had a few too many. I'll see myself out. The front door is thankfully not on a separate end of the house. Walter had a foyer, small hallway, and a lot of furniture in between the spot I died in the outside world. How did you get into our house? The woman asked. You know, I'm dying to find out myself, I say. As the steps crunch under my feet, I look down at my clothes in the sunlight and there are no stains or signs that I died. A moment and a half ago, I was face down on a hardwood floor, and now I'm in a random neighborhood as if I ended up here after a bender. But there's something off. As far as I know, it's still 2015, and I'm just outside of Atlanta, yet nothing looks familiar. I still have my wallet, keys to a car that isn't here, and an iPhone that won't turn on. If my phone doesn't work, I bet my future non-existent children, my debit and credit cards don't either. There's 40 bucks in cash in my wallet though. With no transportation or an Uber app, I'm either going to need to walk to a Marta bus stop or steal a car. Stopping at a crossroads where a Lincoln town car is idling behind a minivan, I figure a somewhat stylish 1990s luxury vehicle is the lesser of two evils. The old man, tapping his thumb along to fun fun fun, has his window rolled down, so I don't have to see if the door is unlocked before grabbing him by the ear, slipping my fingers under his jaw, and throwing him to the pavement. Have I ever done this before? Maybe in my short time at Jefferson Tate, I drove someone's car into a parking garage after killing them. Wasn't there some dealer named Stick or Branch? Odd foreshadowing to the man who ended up killing me, I suppose. My foot is a little heavy on the accelerator and I almost run a stop sign. The woman in a PT Cruiser takes her turn before I start pulling forward. But there's this little bitch in an Escalade who almost slams into my right side. I have to hit my brake and they try pulling around me and I gotta say I'm, a, I'm just no, in no mood for this shit right now. They're poor chrome grilled dents when I ram the Lincoln into them. The driver has to counter with their own accelerator to prevent from going backwards before reversing and pulling around to get away from me, but they turn to the right instead of where they were headed. This opportunity reminds me that I can escalate this to the point someone gets seriously hurt. I have an objective to find out where the hell I am and how to 
mitigate my seemingly second chance. Perhaps this is all a test from God. I'm in purgatory or a simulation. However, I'm in the Trinity and can do whatever the fuck I want. Depending on how old these tires are, I might rip a hole in them the way they squeak against the asphalt as I'm banking on knocking off the Escalade's bumper when we collide. Even with me rear-ending them, I bet they know better than to get out. Luckily, they don't slam on their brake and try getting away. A power pole serves as an adequate speed bump, and that's when the little balding man with his Mormon missionary costume tries running away. He thinks I got caught up in a moment and won't follow him onto the sidewalk because that means I'm a murderer. Hell, he might be able to come back to the crash site in a few minutes to have a calm conversation with me. He lets out a surprised whimper when the Lincoln actually pulls onto the sidewalk only a few yards away, and his adrenaline no doubt gives him the boost to hop a chain-link fence in front of a house. But those don't offer much protection from a speeding car. A woman looks at the scene from her screen door, and she likely doesn't have insurance to cover the property damage. She'll also have to disclose that a murder took place on her front lawn. The man is already pleading with her to let him inside, to which she responds with a slamming door. At least she'll call 911. Whoa, buddy. The guy turns around with his hands up. My right fist hits his cheekbone and he lands on his ass on broken bricks. With my left foot, I kick him in the throat before switching to my right for his stomach. I bet you pull that shit all the time, I say, in your expensive SUV with your middle management clothes thinking at least you're not the poor shit that has to drive a 1994 Lincoln. Mister, he holds up his hands again. You want to live, I ask. You want to learn something from all this? What do you want? He's already reaching into his pocket. Cash, I say. I only have cards, he says. Well, that's just bad judgment. Another couple of punches to his nose and he stops moving. If he survives this, I hope he never drives again. As I'm headed back to my stolen car, all of the gawkers are moving again. At least one of them probably made a video on their phone. Of course, my outburst made any attempt I made at being inconspicuous null. Prior to this moment, my public displays of violence were limited to bombing server rooms and crashing various flying contraptions into buildings. Freudland really made a domestic terrorist out of me. All in the name of taking down what I thought was Lucifer's corporate empire when I was really helping him build a new one. I could drive to a bad neighborhood start a few fights, eventually find someone with a gun, steal their weapon and wallet, and head out of town. I might as well skip all that and try to get out of the city without ending up in a police shootout where I have to kill a bunch of cops. Rather than pulling onto I-20, I park in an empty lot across from a Waffle House and make my way over. My second chance isn't mixing well with driving when all of my thoughts need to work something out.
The jukebox is playing Misunderstanding by Genesis, which is the most welcome and apropos song. Alongside Steely Dan, my dad loved Phil Collins. When this song came on as a kid, I thought it was a strange-sounding ditty about nothing. Then I grew up and found that I really liked the Ceylon Sailor drum part highlighting the stalker lyrics. A waitress doesn't come take my order before the grill stops sizzling, and the place is empty as if everyone blipped out in the second coming. Hash browns burning and bacon cooking is replaced by a specific smoky scent. Lucifer sits across from me as if we arranged a meeting beforehand, which is when I realized this Waffle House probably doesn't even exist. You better get out of town soon. Lucifer pulls my menu away. I think an old friend of yours is headed to town. What's all this? I ask. I know I'm not in hell. No. But you are on the wrong earth. I can only surmise you ended up here when the man who calls himself Birch entered this timeline. What do you know about Birch? I ask. He killed me less than an hour ago. For someone who thinks he possesses such intelligence, you certainly lack a sense of time and place. You've been dead for over 100 years, Mr. Price. My counterpart, the one you know as Lucifer, died not long after you. As much as I adore the company of violent psychopaths, I do not believe you belong here. Whatever you and Mr. Birch call yourselves. The Trinity, I say. Surely you know all this. You hardly resemble the Holy Spirit. This world doesn't know your kind. So I think you should return to a time that resembles what you once knew. Oh, go back to when Birch was able to kill me? I ask. No thanks. I would rather start fresh here, or somewhere where he isn't. Go to wherever the Trinity exists, Mr. Price, Lucifer says. In fact, I suggest doing just as I am sure Birch will. Return to your timeline prior to your father selling his soul so you can stop my counterpart's plot against humanity. No. I'm not going to the 80s and fuck my mother. Whenever you want them, just leave this world. Fine. Care to explain how, Tridick? Once you enter my world, you may enter the hell of any timeline or dimension. I was unaware other timelines truly existed until Birch broke through. Why am I here? I asked. I died. Shouldn't I be in heaven? I cannot explain God, Ken. I merely thread along his laws. What happens after I die? What about Lilith, Birch, and Arthur Lindsay? I am uncertain as those events have yet to transpire. Are you suggesting I send you back to 2015 after your death? Is 
there a way I could return without Birch killing me again? Each generation of the Trinity has what some call a figurehead, but the true figurehead has yet to appear. Whoever truly vanquishes evil from Earth is the figurehead, and that will probably never happen. Although this Lucifer claims my own Lucifer dies. That means either Arthur or Birchkiller. If I go back to 2015, I can take out Satan before either of them and claim the title. I cannot condone my own demise, Lucifer says. Whatever you do in your own time does not concern me. Are you ready to return? Yeah, I say. The very moment Birch took me out so I don't lose my place in the Trinity, if you don't mind. The first thing I notice about hell is how the odor is unlike anything I experienced on Earth. Yet, I know this must be melting stone mixed with a, a sousson of burning flesh. Little flames interrupt total darkness before I'm standing on a platform surrounded by a lake of fire. Steam rises as if creating a barrier and closes around me. Then the black returns before I'm seemingly standing in the exact same place with Satan looking at me. Price, Lucifer tilts his head back. Interrupting his own curiosity, Lucifer quits leaning in to see me as he almost jumps backward. Having a live part of the Trinity in hell likely doesn't bode well for him. You are not Ken Price, he says. His soul remains on Earth, though perhaps not for much longer. I didn't realize how much pleasure I'd take in this, I say. You ruined my life before I was even born. Pushing Lucifer back. I try knocking him down by hooking a foot behind his ankle, but he manages to maintain balance, so I charge him at the waist in a sweep as my knee falls under me and we're on the ground together. He tries pushing me off before I press all of my weight into his stomach, and I begin trying to break through his ribcage. I didn't think about bringing a knife or gun. What insipid children's game are we playing? Lucifer asks. I'm on a scavenger hunt, I say. Once I collect your heart, I'm going to toss it like a frisbee into hell's flames. His grip significantly weakens when I hold Lucifer's heart in my hands, and I squeeze to see his face grimace. I'm not the type to take pleasure in killing. All death should be quick, and I might feel a little less animosity if mine wasn't drawn out with an insulting gesture rather than a simple shot to the head. As Lucifer's body vanishes beneath me, I feel the satanic power in a tidal sensation, almost like an unexpected orgasm as every muscle, vein, blood vessel, and cell reforms, as if God's gift to be invincible wasn't close to perfection. Information pours through my psyche as I'm learning so much at once and I have to realign my focus so I don't miss my opportunity 
to return to Earth at the exact moment Birch pulls the trigger. Exiting hell reminds me of those long tunnels on I-20 as you enter downtown Atlanta. When my class went on field trips, half of us screamed on the bus before the light returned. Instead of old leather, sweat, and feet, I smell grass. And I'm looking at my own corpse from outside a window. Suddenly possessing the satanic power gives me an opportunity to slow time and consider my options. I could destroy the entire house, which would kill Birch Murray and baby Alan. That denies me a lot of satisfaction, though. Instead, I opt to temporarily paralyze Murray, which causes him to fall over where my corpse sat. Walking through the glass without even a crack, I face Birch and hold up my thumb and index finger in the shape of a gun. Pow! I wink at him as my fake gun goes off. The pistol in his hand dissolves. When we first saw one another in Philly, I experienced a fear previously unknown to me. I bled for the first time and ran. The more I consider why I was there, the less I can hold a grudge against Birch. He's a lonely, sad boy, and I killed the first love of his life, and for nothing. Veronica was my cousin and the epitome of victimhood, especially with her spawn sitting in the other room. I didn't know your real name was Kay, I say. Seems a lot less imposing than Birch. I just killed you, Birch backs away. And I was thinking I should kill you. I pulled a chair from the floor and sat down. But now when I consider what I did to you, I think I can remedy the situation. Veronica technically has a soul because she's half human, but that automatically damned her to hell. This line of rationale makes me feel as if I'm playing a role in a bad CW vampire series. Her placement provides me with an advantage, since I can't resurrect souls that ascend to heaven. You want her back, Birch? I ask. This is very out of character for me. You cut my tongue, denied me a final monologue, and shot me like a diseased dog. I'd admire your form if you let me bleed to death while tied up in that chair, but you just wanted to make sure I couldn't say another word. That was a very uncouth gesture, my boy. I'd say we're even, Birch says. But I still lost someone. Let's make a deal, Mr. Abercrombie, I say. I'll let you live if you take that bastard in the other room, little Alan, and raise him as your son with Veronica. When you return to your apartment, she'll be waiting for you, but only if you take the boy and leave. Birch looks down at Murray, back at me, and leaves the room. As I wait to hear if he gets the baby, I turn my attention to my old mentor. Such a tragic case, and I can't wait to tell him all about Lucifer's plot. This must be what people call euphoria. We're hurt by our own ignorance, but knowledge is dangerous. Now, I know everything. 
and get to adjust the pawns and knights accordingly. Oh, me! I can't help laughing. Murray, my friend! You are always the butt of the universe's joke. Let me help you up. Snapping my fingers, we sit across from one another at the kitchen island where my father and Walter shared many drinks. Pouring myself a cold vodka, Birch passes through with the baby in his arms in a sack. Once he's out the front door, I take a sip. As eloquent as I am, I say, I'm about to be very blunt with you, Murray. Having tied me up and allowed someone to kill me, that makes you even more culpable for my death than Birch. It's not fair to end your life so soon. Unfortunately, you're the greater of two evils between yourself and Freudland, which gives me the pleasure of telling you that, um, you're both Antichrist. You, Harley, and Alan were going to bring down humanity together, only to be foiled like villains in a superhero movie by the Trinity. It was originally supposed to be you and only you, but Lucifer saw Veronica as the ace in the hole. The backup plan to the backup plan. I mean, you knew all along that I was the original backup plan. Well, now it's all crumbs at the bottom of the dumpster, friend. Murray's reddened eyes look at me as if I haven't told him a single thing he didn't already know. But that's his farce. He doesn't want to show how much it hurts that his life was always a one-way road to hell. Now he's losing his grandson and that cozy corner of hell he was promised may not be so welcoming when I send him down there. I'm not surprised at all, kid, Murray says. You wouldn't do or say anything if it didn't benefit your interest. That's why you let Alan go. You're hoping to fall through on Satan's plan just so you can be the hero takes him down. Then you'll kill Birch and Arthur and live on your day slowly going crazy. Well, crazier from all that power going to your head. What you've done by becoming the figurehead is cursed yourself. You get to live forever until God decided to end the world himself. Then I better make sure it's the world I want to live in. How many times does Murray need to die, though? Considering his moral compass isn't necessarily pointed south and he possesses a lot of power and wisdom, he'd actually make a tremendous ally. Since I possess the satanic power and there's no one filling the role. I'd rather have him down there running things than meddling with Alan. I doubt he'll be a good Satan, but I don't need someone who's good at playing evil incarnate. There's an empty seat in that underworld, I say. We both know someone has to be Satan and balance evil. What do you say, Huckleberry? You want a chance to realize your full potential? When was the last time I saw even a vague smirk on Murray's face? 
I'm growing uncomfortable with my generosity today. Birch hasn't gotten too far. I could force him to strangle Alan to death and not make good on my end of the deal. Bringing some random lady back to life doesn't sound like me either. I never developed a taste for hurting people and certainly didn't seek out victims to add to my seemingly never-ending list. My initial interest in returning here was vengeance for my death, but I'm alive with a lot more power than before. Before you go, I grab Murray's wrist. We need to have a very important lunch meeting. Harley Freudland's security detail can't account for his sudden disappearance, and certainly can't keep me from turning him into a rusty paperclip if I so choose. He should recognize the dining room since he was here not that long ago, shoving his prick into Walter Grone's corpse. Having instantaneously spent over a century dead, I forgot how plain and unattractive his square head is. Now, Freudland, I say from across the table. I've called you in here to discuss something, but don't be afraid to eat as we talk. Ken! Harley looks around the room. I sense you're learning new tricks. You could have scheduled something with my secretary. I have email, you know. And why is the pitchfork sucker here? Murray is your new master. Well, he's being promoted from VP to Chief Executive Officer. But the good news is we're keeping you in your position. God is my only master, so... Oh, shut the fuck up, Harley, Murray says. Keep up with the God talk and I'll demote you, I say. And no more sick days this year. The office shtick ran its course about five seconds before he showed up, so I implant the reality of the situation in Freudland's mind. Surprisingly, I'm growing weary of explaining things today. Well then, I respectfully resign, Freudland says. God damn it, I say. I want you to keep running Fonda, and instead of destroying any more of Central Network's private property, we're going to buy them out and expand our consumer base a little faster. It's like Charles is in the room, Murray says. We can't purchase Central Network without violating antitrust law, Freudland says. Stop talking. I'm sending you back to your office and you're going to get a notification, probably an email since you're so keen on them, and you're going to be the new CEO of the rebranded Fonda Network. All I want is the appearance of being a businessman. I have no intention of actually working. Aside from installing fail-safes to prevent the internet satellites from falling in 2033, my input in Fonda might consist of occasionally appearing at a meeting or fingering a secretary on a desk. And now that poking orifices is on my mind, I need to find Lilith and my father, though I'm not certain which I want to murder versus keeping one in my, of them in my basement. Considering my situation with Lilith was a fireworks display for my inner fat ADHD kid, I can't resume our living arrangement. 
Since she's likely ruined me for other women, I'll have to craft a damn good fleshlight and some positive affirmation CDs. I do need to get Aroma Thorn an abortion, so maybe I'll just get to know her. Once Freudland's back in his office, I drain my remaining vodka in hopes that Murray will just go away. So, how do we make this official, I ask. I'm not sure what we're talking about anymore, Murray says. There's a comical quality to saying the Lord's Prayer backwards, and after all this diplomacy, I experience a mild urge to take a nap. Prior to my death, I was kind of homeless, considering I was a prison escapee and hiding from my cousin's boyfriend, while motels and shithole towns have their charm and bedbugs can't penetrate my skin, I can't settle for a bed that's not mine anymore. Atlanta's array of new construction, with many apartment buildings going up faster than the cardboard houses in Extreme Makeover Home Edition, and for rent that's more costly than people's mortgage payments, makes me wonder if a large tornado hit Buckhead, Midtown, and Downtown, if all the housing would be held together by old fortune cookie messages and chew-marked number two pencils. I'd love to live in a one-bedroom high-rise with real wood flooring, bright white walls with surrealistic artwork, a mix of ambient and natural lighting, stainless steel kitchen appliances I rarely use, a walk-in closet, separate bathtub and shower, and no unnecessary stairs or hidden storage. Just a minimalist bachelor pad. Unfortunately, developers abandoned good taste in favor of what appears new to a niche group. The rent isn't high in many of these places, because they possess such great amenities with a lovely view of the interstate, the Marta Line, or other thrown-together apartment buildings. It's all about selling people the idea that they have more money than the poor people who walk past their tall buildings every day. The homes built in the 1980s and 1990s are out with this crowd. They don't want the gaudy wallpaper, kitchen islands with their own sink, olive garden decor, and leather sofas. That building that Birch and Arthur Lindsay were going to destroy, Central Network HQ, is about to be vacant from all its empty cubicle walls, Cisco phone system, broadcast studio, and executive offices. Without even snapping my fingers, I can turn it into my ideal apartment. Then I have to erase everyone's memories or brainwash them into believing this took months rather than two seconds. But I need my own place now. Then there's an issue with my legal status since everyone saw my trial on TV. I put a giant hole in a prison and faked my death in a helicopter crash. I see Sakagawa got away with cannibalism and became a Japanese celebrity, but being known as a domestic terrorist doesn't bode well for me. As such, I need to revitalize my public persona, which means I'm going to force some people to lie about the rationale behind my arrest and frame someone else for my crimes. Luckily, Arthur Lindsay is a viable candidate. I should probably deal with him, Aroma Thorn, and the Atlanta Police Department first. Unfortunately, some people will have to die. For instance, every single officer who saw me in prison, including the warden, is going to come down with a super flu. All I have to do is recall all their faces 
and envision the virus making contact with their lungs. Then there are all the officers who accompanied Aroma when Arthur aided in my arrest. I can't kill all of the police force, and I certainly can't remember their faces or names. I doubt even Aroma can. However, they all saw Arthur mow me down with a shotgun and flee the scene of a crime, so it stands to reason I might be framed. Aroma's superior, Officer Conrad Hughes, didn't believe she had a case with me to begin with, but he backed her once I was in custody. Thankfully, I waived my right to a jury and I won't have to wipe them out. Hughes' role in my case presents me with an opportunity. Beyond the collapsing jungle known as Vine City and prostitutes lining Fulton Industrial sits a new housing development where Conrad Hughes and his wife Jennifer recently moved in. Gentrification hasn't broken through the area, so it's a typical suburban development with cheap construction and houses lined in rows with little properties separating them. I find my new ability to enter and exit buildings without having to open a door or window akin to when an audiophile finally gets their favorite album on pristine 180 gram vinyl. The ease of access grants me so many opportunities. In this case, I can plant a fake file of evidence on Hughes' desk that indicates Arthur Lindsay was the true perpetuator behind all of the crimes Aroma arrested me for, included with the suicide note on top. Of course, Conrad is downstairs watching TV with Jennifer, so I have to entice him upstairs. Conrad notices a trail of smoke, but Jennifer claims she can't see anything. He tells her to wait here while he investigates. Upon opening his office door, I am not present, but a police-issued 9mm with his fingerprints on the trigger floats in front of his face and goes off before he can question whether or not he's hallucinating. Much like introducing a virus into the prison system, this isn't the hard part. Is this even my first time casually faking a man's suicide? No, my biggest conflicts are the women in my life. Aroma reminds me of every disciplinarian teacher crossed with a baseball bat to the temple. Lilith is a mousetrap that traps you by sucking your cock. Despite my resentment toward them for merely existing, I don't want to harm either. To my recollection, I've only killed two women. And while I did fuck both of them in consensual tryst prior to their respective deaths, I never sought either of them out for the sake of ending their lives. At least one of them ended up in heaven. Considering that Aroma's pregnancy is a result of Freudlin raping her while she was investigating me, I feel responsibility in taking care of her. While she gives birth to the Antichrist son who possesses the ability to employ people with his mind, I'll be saving her life. I'm not certain if she even knows she's pregnant yet, but I don't need to tell her about inducing her miscarriage. Cooperation in proving to the public I'm innocent possesses the true challenge. I wait until dusk to show up at her apartment. She's not going to answer the door and let me in, so I appear in her kitchen and sit at the table where she reads the paper like, those serve a purpose beyond bedding for the homeless. Aroma turns on the light after she hears me flicking a teacup. Rather than running in the other direction, she stands there with her wet red hair 
wrapped in a towel as droplets formed spots in her gray jersey cotton t-shirt. I should give her some nicer casual wear before I leave. Did you get a call about Conrad? I ask. Two hours ago, Roma says, his wife turned in something to the station. But no one will tell me what it was. A file folder, I say. Evidence that I am innocent. A guilty man committing suicide over a case is pretty compelling, even if it's purely fiction. Am I next then? I am tired of men coercing me through intimidation here lately. Not one of you has offered to do something nice for me, you know, like leaving me the fuck alone. Do you realize that participating in this ruins my reputation as a detective? Your escape has already tarnished it by association, Ken. Why not take everything I own, throw it in a dumpster, and create a pyre for me? Most people I encounter in these situations are more concerned with their lives, but Aroma seems to think there's something worse than dying. Is it embarrassment or merely destroying her legacy as a police officer that she wanted to keep like a trophy? Nabbing a guy with my body count looks good on every resume. She's delusional, yet bold to think I'd care. It's 2015, Aroma, I say. Death isn't a motivator anymore. However, I can paralyze you from the neck down or give you Lou Gehrig's disease. Or you can tell everyone you got the wrong guy and I'll give you five million bucks so you don't have to work again. How generous, Aroma says. Are you going to include the pony ranch and life-size Ken doll I've always wanted to? So, when the press or your superior officer ask for your take, I need you to say you knew it was Arthur Lindsay the entire time. Then, you're going to leave town. Arthur is going to want to kill you after all. I'll protect you if you cooperate. Aroma's gaze turns to the floor and her palm rests under her stomach. In a few moments, she's going to be crying in the bathroom. And I'd like to get her cooperation prior to the miscarriage. That time of the month, I ask. I'm late, asshole, Aroma says. Feels like I'm about to start, though. Go ahead, I motion. I'll be back tomorrow if I don't see the press release. Remember, it was Arthur. Since it's getting late, I return to Walter's old house because I need to stay out of the public eye. However, something about sleeping in the same place I died doesn't sit well in my gut. When Birch took the satanic power, he built his own home in a matter of seconds. I'm not about to put an apartment building on this plot, though I can create a two-story building with my ideal apartment on the top. Demolishing this place might bring me momentary joy, but I'd still have to clean up the rubble from all the bricks, wood, and glass. Instead, I make Walter Grohn's domicile disappear, and in its place sits a brick building with a cream marble stone border on the first floor. The foyer gives the facade of a luxury apartment lobby with soft red tinted flooring, eggshell white walls, a stairwell that leads to the living quarters, and a long hall that leads to the first floor basement. 
All I care about is the king-sized bed. As I toss my clothes around the room, I realize I can clean myself without taking a shower, so I don't need to worry about getting my new sheets dirty, but I could just have fresh sheets every day without even moving. But in my sleep-deprived mind, I also think about reviving myself without sleep. Then I'd be depriving myself of two pleasures in life we take for granted until we need them. Couldn't I kill everyone in Atlanta without knowing any of them? What purpose does hurting anyone serve? I can't remember everyone I've killed. In the moment, I thought they were in my way somehow. Although, Freudland used me to hurt many of the people I don't recall. Which of them deserved an early trip to heaven or hell? Certainly my father, but I didn't actually kill him. If my life were a manuscript sitting on some English major's desktop and he pressed Control F to search words like kill, murder, and blood, how much of my story would those acts comprise? Perhaps I should accept that and stop denying that I am anything more than a murderer. Giving people second chances because I got one is not unlike everyone being nice to each other after a tragedy. I might end up doing something to traumatize Alan up into including choking Birch while my cousin bleeds out like a deer carcass in the shower. I definitely forgot to revive Veronica today. It's almost 13 hours from Atlanta to Philly, though. Should I actually send up her soul or kidnap a random woman, erase her memories, and change her into Veronica? Now the obligation of eventually fighting Alan publicly causes me anxiety the same way a lunch meeting scheduled several days in advance makes me wish I could cancel. Why don't I just fucking do it now so I don't have to later? When I try mentally sorting through the souls in hell, I can't find Veronica. Surely she had a soul. All I need is some sleep and time to adjust back to living, and I have this one problem that can't wait. I don't think Birch is going to toss Alan off the balcony if Veronica is in his apartment like I promised, but I don't like having egg on my face from overconfidence. Murray stands at the foot of my bed and luckily doesn't fall over for me summoning him without warning. I'd hate for him to break his hip the first day on the job. I need you to find your daughter, I say. Birch is about to go get home and uh, I don't want this shit right now. She doesn't want to be found, Murray says. Since she's part of the satanic bloodline, she can go wherever she wants in hell, and you'd have a higher chance of bumping into her at the grocery store than summoning her soul. Oh, this fucking bitch right now. I press my hands against my eyelids. What do you think would make her appear? What can we use as bait? Obviously, we can't put Alan on a hook and hope she bites. She never loved the little shit. I doubt Birch will be suitable, Murray says. She didn't really have a chance to love many things. What about things she hated? I ask. Besides you, what else has she got? Allison is down there, Murray says. I suppose you could... Blow her up like a Thanksgiving parade balloon and hope she scares Veronica out of her hole. That'd only take a million years. Get me Allison then, I say. Send her up here now. Uh, Murray says. You want to do what now? If you want to know a good reason not to do that, 
just remember she and I were together. It's my understanding that people who willingly sleep with Antichrist possess poor character. But what? Get her up here! I clap my hand so he'll stop talking. Leaving in a wisp of smoke, I presume Murray is following my instruction and not cowering back to hell. But I don't want to have to go back down there tonight. A body falls on my bed and topples to the floor before letting out a sharp breath and looking up at me as I crawl over to see whether or not they're alive. This woman makes Danny DeVito look like Andre the Giant and her face is round with an unfortunate nose. Should I send her to Philly or to find me truffles? You're Allison? I ask. Murray really needed higher standards. Do, do you know what it is like to be held down over lava while hot spikes are sodomizing you? She asked. I'm surprised I'm not bleeding all over the rug. As seductive as this presentation is, I say, I need a favor. First, you don't have a choice because you're doing this. Second, I'm going to wipe your memory so it won't matter what you're thinking right now. Third, you don't look anything like your daughter, so I need to fix that. Can, can I have a moment? Allison asked. I'm used to shooting people in the head rather than bringing them back from the dead. If someone asked me for a moment, I'd probably shoot them in the heart instead, and they'd die slower. You haven't even acknowledged who I am, Ken, Allison says. I used to babysit you. My dad meant so much to your father, and when we found out what he did... What? I asked. You want me to feel sorry that our fathers were serial killers? That's all I can be. It's my fate. You didn't have to be a crack whore of a mother. Oh, I had time to think about that while my hair burned to my scalp over and over. I don't need to listen to you, I say. I brought you back because we couldn't find Veronica. Good, Allison says. She deserves her peace. Though I can change Allison into her daughter, mislead Birch for the sake of my own gain, and try unifying Trinity in my favor, an urgency inside of me says that none of this is right. I came back to life and changed the course of what was supposed to happen, effectively creating a new timeline. None of these people are really who they were anymore. My return to Earth has simply augmented reality to suit my needs, and I might as well be jacked into a computer program or open world game where I make all the decisions. I don't think I need you anymore, I say. I thought that was your entire purpose, Allison asked. You don't need me. You need Veronica. I suppose you don't want to return to hell, I ask. You suppose right, she says. Well, you effectively have your second chance, Allison, I say. I'm making you a bank account with two million dollars. I can send you anywhere in the world you'd like to go, and you'll never need to deal with me again. Handing her a debit card, Allison looks at the green plastic with her name engraved and back at me. What are you going to do with Alan? Allison asks. I'm going to kill him eventually, I say. Maybe tonight? Why don't you send me where you were going to send Veronica? I'd like to see if I can try this again. You can go to Japan. You can go to England. 
You can go to Bend Over, Alaska. Why do you want to try being a mother again? Because it's my second chance, like you said, Allison says. I bet I can do better than someone who won't love him. All right, but I can't promise Birch won't hurt you. He doesn't seem the type. Once I'm alone again, I lie back and the darkness comes soon. As if the night passes in a moment, the light finds my eyes. The way the sun fills my apartment reminds me of what I thought rich people looked like. Rich people in the South have poor taste in how they display their wealth. Before I go shower, I look at the news on my phone to see if there's any mention of Conrad Hughes or Aroma Thorne. Eleven Alive's website has a headline. Two APD officers dead. That could be any Tuesday in Atlanta. None of the other headlines reference Hugh, so I go back to the first one and see their photos at the top of the page. Although Conrad's suicide and the contents of the file were initially kept out of the media, Aroma Thorne's death at 1.37 a.m. in Grady Hospital brought more attention to the fact that my case was connected somehow. After going to the ER for her miscarriage, which the news can't legally print, there were some other complication. Her death is a footnote compared to the write-up on Arthur Lindsay. I wanted to take a long shower, eat some kiwi with Japanese apple pear and a muffin, watch an episode of Frasier and attend to Lilith and Father. Having been back for less than 24 hours and already inadvertently killed someone, I see that my plans haven't been very foolproof. In fact, had Freudlin not raped Aroma, she wouldn't be dead. Do I need to kill all three of them? While my father definitely deserved a lot worse than death, Lilith was doing her job. I got some good sex out of it and learned a few things. She's made an excellent replacement for Freudlin as the new CEO of Fonda Network. I simply can't trust her to be my mouthpiece, though. She's too smart. What am I going to do when all this is over today? Prior to Bert shooting me in the head, my life always had purpose. With all of my power and every enemy gone or indisposed, what do I have to do? Perhaps that's why my uncle and father buried so many people at that old church. When you have everything, what is there to live for? Having slept on it, allowing Freudland's business to prosper and Alan to grow up is still realizing Lucifer's plan. That's what I thought I was working against. In the coming years, Fonda's investment in Edison electric vehicles will see most people getting new cars with AI dependent on the free satellite Wi-Fi. Even the government, power plants, and every conceivable resource we maintain is connected to the Fonda satellite system that's supposed to launch this year. I materialize in Freudland's office where he's on the phone. He holds up a finger as I approach him, as if I give a shit who he's talking to. After I put the receiver down, I kick his chair back so I can sit on his desk. He's wearing a sweater vest, blue Ralph Lauren shirt, and khaki chinos, as if he's about to hit the golf range immediately after work. Hardly the kind of outfit I'd want to die in. Hear the news, I ask. I've been busy trying to figure out this proposed merger of yours, Freudlin says. Ah, 
Remember when I used to be a majority shareholder? When no one wanted to buy any Fonda stock? That's been almost five years ago. You couldn't have built this place without me. Oh, by the way, Aroma Thorne died early this morning. She was pregnant with your child. That seems to have worked out in both of our favors then, he says. Actually, I wanted her to live, I say. I induced the miscarriage, but something else did it. Some complication. You know how random death can be. Did you come here and interrupt my call for this? No, Harley. I came here because I make better decisions after I sleep, and I've slept on this whole merger. I think we're going to take it in a different direction. Meaning, Harley says, as the new majority shareholder of both companies, I say, I am sunsetting the satellite program. There will not be a partnership with Edison, and we're going to keep the, the name Central Network. Fonda will be absorbed instead. About 60 seconds ago, I sent an email from your company account stating your intent to vacate your position. Happy early retirement, Harley. Rather than hit me with a snappy comeback, Harley watches his fingers tap on his armrest and makes a sound indicating, well, I guess I'm through. People usually beg for their lives or offer whatever they have to you. They list off reasons they shouldn't die. Harley isn't stupid because he knew before I hung up the phone that he was likely not going to see lunch today. I thought about asking you to kill me yesterday, Harley says. When someone tells you that your whole existence is a lie, then what is my purpose? I thought I was on God's side. I'd like to take pity on you. I hold my hand to Harley's face. But I went to prison for you. It never got my due. He scratches and pushes at my wrist as my fingers burn into Harley's flesh. The way he squeezes my arm and howls as his face turns to black and red makes me chuckle a little. A man made by Satan has such a low tolerance for pain. Pulling him to the floor, I press all of my weight into a kick against his spine. I'm not certain I actually want to end Harley's life, but I certainly want him to hurt. He admitted he wanted to die, and I'm not certain my generosity extends that far. Normally, I kneel down. I just do it. Why prolong someone's suffering? Plus, something can go wrong. They can get away. Someone might see you. A good killer does the deed, cleans up the scene, and leaves. You hurt a woman in a way I never could, Harley. I have never been so desperate for power over someone. Rape? God. People say a lot about me, and now we can add torture to the list, but I've never thought to do that. Harley tries crawling away, so I sit on him and set his hair on fire. His fingers burn as he tries smothering the flame. Now his screaming sounds like an injured bird. No, I'm not saying murder isn't worse than rape, I say. I'd much rather Murray and Birch took turns fingering my asshole and making me suck their dicks and sent off too soon. You may rather be dead now, but you're going to be sizzling in hell wishing you could trade that pain for this, 
could you take a moment to appreciate what you did to Aroma? She was going to have to raise your son. I think his name was going to be Jason and live with the memory of you on her. I get a chill realizing that. Makes me want to shoot Freudland in the back of the head. Keeping him alive to suffer only serves a momentary desire. I feel similarly about Alan. If I can remove any connection that boy has to Lucifer, along with his power, I can let him live. One ticking time bomb at a time, though. Harley, I lean over. I'll make sure Murray finds a special place for you down there. Shortly before Aroma found my father, he was living in an old gas station somewhere in Bremen. Makes sense that he wouldn't go far while he was still under contract with Lucifer. With Murray serving that role, Charles Price's deal is voided, and I hope we're able to find him a place near Freudland. At this point, Bremen isn't abandoned. The Honda Lock and Walmart are going strong. That's about all this town has. It's unlikely Father is working and living in a gas station at this point, so he must have had a stash to live off for a while. In five years, his beard and hair likely make him unrecognizable to anyone who used to know him, but how likely are they to even drive through Bremen? Instead of sleeping near explosive fire hazards, Father lives in a single-wide trailer near the downtown area. I knew someone who once described Bremen as a one-horse town, but add some meth and dented Toyota Camrys for flavor. Just standing in the gravel driveway reminds me of being 14 again. Before I knew I could kill him, I thought he might kill me one day. As a child, Father treasured me and made Mother a glorified egg donor. Satan's power, I see how she once had a personality and taste for cocaine. As I approach the front door, I nearly make brake squeals when someone turns the knob and stands in the doorway. Father falls on the cement block steps and down on the overgrown grass as Arthur Lindsay steps outside. Excuse me, sir! He holds up a shotgun. But this here is private property and the owner is currently indisposed. I pointed the gun and it vanishes from his hands. Rather than jump backwards in shock, Arthur leans down to my father's body and holds him up by the hair so his face looks at me. You must be a little pissy that I took this privilege away from you, Arthur says. How did you find him? I ask. Oh, my dear pork packer. Arthur opens his arms. You can take out all your enemies one by one, but you can't be in two places at the same time. Lilith, your former fuckhole whore, warned me that the police were going to come down to my house and lock me up. She gave me old Chucky's address, so I waited until she gave me the go-ahead and present you with the fresh corpse of your daddy. I'll have to repay her for the courtesy, I say. But you can't kill me, Arthur jumps down. You need me and Birch to help you to take out Alan Price on his 18th birthday. The way I got this figured out, you wanted me to take the fall for you, all you've done and rot in prison until you came for me. 
as soon as the deed was done, you'd shoot me in the back like Bruce Dern and the Cowboys. Then I suppose you're ready to turn yourself in, I ask. Nope. I can't trust you, Ken. That's why I have an insurance policy. Sold my soul to Murray yesterday. What's that gonna do? You traded heaven for hell. Sounds like you just got burned. Means I can come back whenever I want. That was part of the deal. Got me a little honey down there named Shauna Briscoe. The first person in the Trinity to trade their everlasting soul to the devil. Just one more soul and Murray could throw everything off balance. That might mean bad things for you, Ken. Conceptually, there should only be three of us on Earth in the Trinity. Introducing more than that certainly throws the scales of good and evil off balance. One possibility of three coming back is God sending the last three back to counteract Satan's actions. I only know of Lester Donaldson and Aiden Zavala. The man who Lester killed in his youth was supposedly a Native American man, but I can't think back that far. So what? I ask. So you're going to build me a new house in Cuba, Arthur says. I'll be there until 2033, and we'll revisit the whole me dying thing then. Though the realization that Arthur beat me once again makes me want to light everything in a 10 mile radius on fire, sending him to hell won't work in my favor. As long as he's alive in 18 years, I still win. By then, I might contemplate a way to destroy his contract. Returning to hell doesn't appeal to me at the moment. Where's Lilith? I ask. Ah, Arthur says. Send me to Cuba and I'll give you a call. Fine, I say. Only a moment, old friend. Searching for empty plots of land in Cuba, I find something suitable, create a replica of the house from Modern Family because that's the first one that comes to mind, and send Arthur out of the country. I hope he enjoys his bland television set home. Yeah, I answer my iPhone. Murray Senator, your house, Arthur says, as a peace offering. Hanging up the phone, I ensure Arthur's shotgun reappears next to Father. Given my indecisiveness, there was a chance I'd let him live. However, I don't appreciate that choice taken from me. Lilith betraying me when she was lying to me for years does not bode well for her mortality. With Charles Price gone, someone has to fill his homicidal void in the world. Evil must balance with good. Opening my door, I wait a moment at the end of the hall to listen for her. Locking the deadbolt, I look in the kitchen and don't see her in the living room, so she's either in the bedroom, bathroom, or walk-in closet. You there? I lean against the wall. Ken, Lilith says. I could do it from here without even looking at you, I say. You won't, though. Confident, I say leading me on for five years, being the sole reason my father's dead and putting the world at risk by allowing another member of the Trinity to sell their soul. Apparently all meaningless and not warranting me painting my walls red with your insides. If you think us fucking constantly and me being the perfect girlfriend for 1,640 days is leading you on, 
I know about a billion men who would suck each other off in a Texas-sized orgy just to get a chance to smell my feet. So I should be grateful for the deception? Murray didn't send me here to argue with you, Lilith says. Although I'd like you to look at me and reconsider. And reminisce about how I thought you were a hooker that I paid to live with me? I can give you your money back if you show me a receipt. Also, the preferred term is sex worker. Turning around to look in the bedroom, I prepared to turn her into a marble statue and take a sledgehammer to the stone until her remnants are indistinguishable from broken cement on a common street corner. Of course, she wanted me to look at her. Once in everyone's life, who knows love is ruined by that one person. The best fuck of their life, leaving them chasing those orgasms to no success. Someone who is the most attractive out of all of them. So you'll judge all of the new faces by theirs. You didn't deduct my prison sentence, I say. We were not together all the past five years. Oh. Lilith sits on the bed. I bet I can give you back the time we missed out on. I know you could, I say, and I intend to take a lot more than just time from you. Having lived through every major milestone of mankind, Lilith's memories are a history researcher's wet dream. Never again will she dwell on Adam rejecting her, or the many rulers and kings Lucifer sicked her on like a pit bull in heat. Without knowing who she was or remembering how she betrayed me, Lilith won't be the same person, so how can I hold her actions against her? The best aspect is that there's no sign I took away everything other than a blank stare. My love, my love, I sit down next to her. I'm sorry, she asks. What's your name? I ask. Name? Your name is Lilith, isn't it? I suppose. And do you know mine? Your what? My name, I point at myself. No, she says. Ken. I touch her cheek. Why don't you take off that dress and let's see what muscle memory I left. I'm aware that stripping away a person's autonomy and personality is a crime worse than murder to some people. If I choose to let someone live, they can change their life and never see me again if they choose. However, taking away that option makes them my victim still, much like the times I was the last person one of my victims saw. I feel so much better now that Lilith isn't herself. Since she'll remain in my home for the foreseeable future, no one will know who she is either. Also, I need something to do. If I keep hijacking people's lives, then I interrupt the flow of fate. Birch, Arthur, and Allison deserve their second chances. They may not be alive after I kill Alan. However, I also get to enjoy this renewal in my new role as a CEO. Without Freudland, I know no better person to fill his position. After a week, I don't make a public appearance when the news covers how I was set up by APD. No one knows that Freudland is dead yet, 
and I'm not sure I should replace him. The fact that one company absorbs another without the CEO being alive says a lot about leadership. As bored as I am now, I would want to implode myself if I sat in that office downtown for more than a day. The more I consider who to put in that role, I realize that I don't know anybody anymore. People who make my acquaintance have a habit of disappearing. 2033 is still 18 years away, and once that happens, there's nothing left for me to do. Who the hell wants to sit around a house fucking around when they have Satan's powers at their disposal? If I want, I can take over the world. No one even needs to know it's me either. There's not a soul I desire to impress. So what's my goal? When I shuffled from motel to motel after my prison break, I reflected on Father. Each morning he wore a suit, carried a briefcase, and often left before I was even ready for school. While he did a lot of Satan's bidding, he also practiced law. Sometimes the difference between the two blurs in retrospect, but he had a career. The people at Central Network knew him as another man to fill up space during meetings without any awareness of what he did. What was Charles Price's purpose, though? He certainly didn't have goals. Was he any different than the others at Central Network who came to work, performed a replaceable role, came home, watched TV, and went to bed without dwelling on how every day is wasted time? And I came back to life, created a perfect life, and I'm bored. Father killing random people makes a lot more sense now. However, I'm not sure I'm really alive. The circumstances of my revival and suddenly having everything I wanted are too good. A couple of days of vengeance, some minor disappointments, and Lilith's returned aren't too dissimilar to what heaven or purgatory must be like. I summon Murray from hell after I tell Lilith to go outside. Without her memory, she resembles a faithful dog more than a woman. I should have sent her back to hell. What can I do for you that you can't possibly accomplish? Murray asked. There's a way back to Earth 1 through hell, I say. If I go back there, I think I'll choose a different year to come back. You think you want to go to a different year? Murray asked. Are you that bored having everything you ever wanted? Some people like to travel, I say. I'd like to try time travel. Look, Ken, Murray sits down. Your time excursion left me a little curious, and there's a reason you shouldn't go back there. I don't give a shit. You know I'm going to do what I want anyway. I'll help you out and give you the info, but you need to give Lilith back her memory and let her go. That was cruel even by my standards, and she deserves better. And what are you going to do with her once I'm gone? I haven't decided, Murray says. Do it, Ken. Lilith, without her personality and knowledge, is akin to mashed potatoes without the gravy. She helped me come up with a better metaphor, too. Rather than face her in the moment, she regains true consciousness. I send her to a random McDonald's and grant her back the memories I took. If I know her, she'll get a double quarter pounder with cheese and await Murray to give her orders. All right, I say. What shouldn't I know about Earth-1? 
There are a lot of differences you didn't have time to notice, Murray says. Earth One is the real world. It's a universe much different from ours. There's no trinity, no one with satanic power flying around, and not a quantifiable balance between good and evil. The world is just the world and nothing more than what people make it. Then I'll be unique, I say. Sounds like a fun outing. Your power won't really work there. You'll still be invincible, but only because you're not real. Neither one of us actually exists. I'd call you a liar, but it seems like you actually believe that bullshit. Earth One is where we were created. But we're not actual people created by God. Well, you're not. What are you leading up to? Do you remember a few years ago when you were in your father's office and looked at his signed copy of Lesson Zero? That's a very specific moment, so not really. Red Easton Ellis is still alive on Earth One. He never really died. Okay, so you said there were differences between this world and that one. He inspired you, Murray says. Well, he inspired the author. What? I ask. We are fictional characters, Ken. Had you never crossed over into Earth-1 and come back, I wouldn't be aware of any of this. The events that occurred from my daughter Veronica's birth in 2033 are documented in a book. And I'm sure you're delighted to know that you got your own book. But if any of that is true, then this conversation isn't really happening. Obviously, you and I are sitting across from one another and talking. Okay, Murray nods. Let's dissect this. What were you doing before you summoned me? I wouldn't say I was doing anything, Murray. Contemplating my role in this world and what to do next. Where were you? Bedroom? Living room? Closet? Kitchen? I was where I am now, I say. Which is where? I look around and see that I'm in the living room and Murray is sitting across from me. But I can't mentally describe any of my surroundings other than what I laid out earlier regarding the floor plan when I designed the apartment. I'm resting on something, likely a chair or couch, yet I can look right at it and don't feel as if I can describe my own furniture. If anything you just said is true, I say, then my, 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 my life is meaningless. I might as well destroy the earth and go to heaven. But could you do that of your own free will? Murray asks. How do I dictate my actions? If everything I think, say, and do are the result of someone typing at a keyboard while sitting in their pajama bottoms, then how do I know my life story so well? I'm a fully formed man with parents, memories of school, ex-lovers, a long list of people I've killed, 
had no idea how to proceed with the mess I made. Nothing I'm saying is my own thoughts or even my own words, Murray says. I'm simply not the protagonist of this story, though I have been the main character before. Where is all this medium awareness coming from, I ask. This conversation's getting old, Kim. Let's go to hell. I find myself not wanting to go through the ordeal of describing hell once again and cut to the point where I meet the author, which is the obvious conclusion to the information Murray laid on me. Although there's a chance I have no choice in this decision as if my life isn't fast-forwarded, but rather jump-cut, like a film edit. Instead of a cottage near the sea or Lincoln Lot cabin on a mountainside, I stand outside an apartment in what I presume is somewhere in Atlanta. Something about the rows of units feels familiar to me as if I've been here before, yet it's cleaner here than whatever I'm able to recall. What was that girl's name whose boyfriend I killed? She lived in an apartment somewhere past the Six Flags exit. I think I killed her too. The man who answers the door is somehow awkwardly handsome with a head I might describe as square, and his teeth have an overbite, yet each tooth looks perfectly white and proportionate. His hair, swept back and dark, somehow looks shiny even under the overcast sky. Hi, he says. Good afternoon, I offer my hand. Ken Price. He steps back as if he's about to shut the door and looks at me for a moment. Steve Sebastian, he says. But I guess you knew that if you found my apartment. Are you a fan? I don't remember us ever talking on Twitter. Wait, I say. Murray said that you were in control of everything. You don't know why I'm here? Murray, he asked. So you, you've read Demise. Do you want me to sign something? No, I say. I'm Ken. Your character. You apparently made me? I'd conjure a knife or gun to show him that my skin won't break, but Murray didn't lie about my power not working here. Why did I come here then? If, if you get a knife, I say. I'll let you see if you can cut my hand. Dude, that's just all made up in my books, Steve says. And it's weird that you'd come here like this. I, I, I might be more understanding if they sold worth a shit, but I'm a journalist. No one knows me from my books. Not only am I a fictional character, but I'm not even in a best-selling book. This guy's writing must suck. That certainly explains the strange, unrealistic turns my life took. How can I prove this is real? I ask. What's your mother's name? Steve asks. Nicole, I say. Okay, who's your uncle's wife? You mean my Aunt Pat? Alright, you've clearly read my stuff, but ask me something a reader wouldn't know then. What school is Jefferson Tate based on? You mean it's not a real school? I ask. I guess if you were kin, you wouldn't know that. Uh, 
he holds up a finger and shuts the door. When he returns, he doesn't hold a knife, but rather a hammer. I'm not going to enjoy wherever that lands, but I'll let him hit me to prove my story. Steve! I hold my arms up. If that's what you need to do... Are you going to sue me if I hurt you? He asked. You're not going to hurt me, I say. Here, I'll turn around. He uses the top of the hammer to punch me in the left cheek. While I'm not going to bruise, the metal sends a vibration through my skull and muscles while my teeth clench. I don't yell or moan, yet I want to take the hammer from Steve and shove the end of his rectum. That should have broken something, he says. Well, it didn't, I stand straight up. There probably isn't even a red mark. Nope, he looks closely. Come inside, Mr. Price. Instead of empty beer cans, beat-up paperbacks, a smoking ashtray, or even a dead hooker, Steve's apartment is not unlike my own with a minimalist approach that even exceeds mine without a single picture or painting on the walls. Even the desk in the corner lacks a grand decrepitude I expect from an author. There are no coffee mug stains or burn marks. Coke Zero? Steve asked. I know Birch drinks them, but I can't remember if you do. I'll take one, I say. Odd that you'd mention him. I guess we're all just characters to you. I've been in all your heads a lot, he says. Returning with a serving tray, Steve sets down two cans, tall ornate glasses, and an ice bucket. How many people does he entertain if he has this kind of setup? I never thought to bring out a tray with all the social accoutrements. Can I see the books? I ask. Oh, Steve says. You ha- Oh, hang on. He sets four books in front of me. Demise of the Trinity, Price of the Trinity, Surviving New America, and Birch. I surmise that the second one is my book, but Birch got his name as his title. I guess he's the favorite thing. Which do I die in? I ask. Demise, Steve says. What happens in the one about me? It's about your time in college. So I guess I'm caught up on the first two. What's this new America business? I tried writing a Kurt Vonnegut sort of thing with all the political stuff that was going on during COVID. COVID? Don't worry about it. Steve pulls the books away. What exactly were you planning to do here? If he made me, shouldn't Steve understand my motivations and therefore be able to explain why I'm here? Considering my life is split into two books and I serve no greater purpose other than filling white pages with black text, then I expect a little more from him. I assume you're familiar with your own books, I say. Is the whole Earth One concept in this bitch novel? Earth One? Steve asked. Didn't Birch jump timelines like I did? No, that that novel's about his time in Philadelphia. When I opened the book, all the words looked like gibberish. Everything in the first three books is in English, though. Isn't this Earth One? I asked. Look, man, Steve says. I'm not really all that complicated. 
None of what I wrote is, is either. Besides, I wrote all of it when I was in college and thought I was going to be a famous novelist. You didn't write any of this, I say. I don't remember how I got to Steve's apartment, but I definitely recall all of the conversation I had with Another trick from Satan to fuck with my head. None of the books have Steve Sebastian on the cover anyway. It's some guy named Patrick Attaway. Sounds like a guy who sleeps with a blanket over his head because he thinks vampires might attack him tonight. Patrick Attaway. I hold up the book. But Steve is in the room. In fact, the room isn't the same. Instead, the white walls and floor glow as if I'm looking at a screen. Then the light dims into a gray before fading into black. For less than a moment, I'm surrounded. The darkness replaces everything. My eyes open and Lilith is asleep next to me. Instead of the apartment, we're back in my old bedroom. I pick up the iPhone on the nightstand to see the time, and the date is February 2011. Everything I change is undone, but so is my fate. Am I going to be able to prevent my demise, though? Eventually, I will have to die by Birch's hand. Freudlin is going to kill Walter Grone and dissolve Central Network. New York won't survive Alan Price. Society as we know it is going to fail. Meanwhile, Lilith doesn't know that I'm aware she's distracting me and Lucifer is Satan again. Perhaps he's the key to this constant disorder. Why are you sitting up? Lilith tries pulling me back. I need to pee, I say. I'll make us something to eat, she says. No, I get out of bed. I'll get dressed and take us out. Ooh, she lifts a leg in the air. Brunch. I pull on my jeans and run down the stairs to father's office for one of his guns and back to the garage. His black Porsche is here. The car that opened my world at Jefferson Tate. I have to get on the road before Lilith can chase after me. If I'm still alive, then has Alan even been born yet? I'm not certain on the timeline. I think Veronica has Alan in early 2015. While I couldn't show up at Walter's house and gun him down, I can stop Satan's spawn from happening. Then I'll need to figure out whether to kill Freudlin or Murray. He can't stop me from going after Harley because he doesn't even realize that Lucifer made a second Antichrist. As I get closer to Allison's apartment, my phone rings. It's Murray. And I thought you were done with me, I answer. What are you doing, kid? Murray asks. Why don't you turn around at the nearest exit and go home? So you know where I'm going, I ask. Are you also aware that I know Lilith isn't some former whore I picked up outside a bar, Murray? Has Lucifer told you about Harley Freudlin yet? You know he's the second Antichrist, right? Look, Ken, I don't know what you're going on about. I'm asking you to go home. I'll meet with you, buy us lunch, we'll have a drink, whatever the hell you want. Just don't do what you're about to do. You can't avoid what I'm telling you, Murray, I say. Freudlin is going to kill Walter and hire two people in the Trinity to take down Central Network HQ. It's all part of Lucifer's plot, and you're never going to realize your full potential as the original Antichrist. 
Do you not find that even remotely irritating? We'll talk about that, Murray says. We'll talk about anything you want. Hey, Murray. I pull into a parking space. You want to stay on the phone while I do it? Do what, Ken? You shouldn't be there and shouldn't even know who they are. Oh, you mean your daughter? I ask. Veronica? I end the call and go over to the apartment's door. Rather than knock and wait for Allison and Veronica to answer, I try the handle and it's unlocked. Allison has passed out on the couch and she'd looked better when I revived her from hell. A girl is sitting in the kitchen. The smell of chicken ramen noodles can't overpower the weed, which always reminds me of rubber cement and skunk piss. Even though she's about four or five years younger than when I met her in Philly, Veronica has that same emo girl face that no doubt came from Murray's jeans. Some people have resting bitch face. Veronica has resting suicidal tendencies face. Who are you? She asks. Sorry, sweetie. I hold up the revolver. I don't have time to talk. The loud pop doesn't wake up Allison. I'd stage a murder scene if this gun wasn't registered in my father's name. In a neighborhood like this, gunshots aren't exactly surprising. For a moment, I look at Allison snoring on the couch and consider killing her too. But she's not going to birth Satan's son. Backing out of my space and putting the car in drive, my phone keeps vibrating. So I answer on the speaker so I can focus on getting the fuck out of here. I'm surprised Lucifer didn't send my father to try stopping me. Allison doesn't live far from Bremen. Ken? Murray opens. What'd you fucking do it, Ken? Did you have to go after my daughter? Your daughter was going to be Lucifer's egg donor, I say. Did you want me to perform a hysterectomy on her instead? I asked you to meet with me. We could have worked something out. It's Saturday, Murray, I say. You think Harley's at home? What the fuck are you talking about, Ken? You just murdered my only child. No one should should have even known where she was. How did you find out? You want to know what's extra freaky, I ask? You could have stopped me, but Lucifer put a muzzle on your power after you knocked up Allison. How did you know about her? You'd better make sure Lilith isn't at my place when I get home, I say. I'll do her next. When I hit a red light, I turn my phone off and put it in the glove compartment. Murray can't protect Harley because he would ruin Lucifer's ruse. If I'm able to take Harley out next, I can buy the remaining shares of Fonda and stop the satellite program from launching. Will I be merely delaying one of Lucifer's plots, though? I'm sure he has a gambit in place so he wins no matter the outcome. Unless I'm misremembering, Harley never gave me his address. I eventually found his property later, but he wouldn't be expecting me to show up here. It's not as if I can look him up in the phone book or Google. If Lucifer cares about his investment, I imagine Harley won't be home when I show up. When I go down the gravel driveway, I see Harley through his large windows as he leans over his kitchen island. 
Our eyes meet when he turns around to use a sink. By the time I get out of the car, Harley is standing outside wiping his hands off. Ken? Sorry I didn't call first. I had to get out of the house before Lilith could distract me. You know, women. Oh, of course, Harley nods. I'm quite familiar with their ways. I was an expecting company, though, so... Before he can run inside, I have the revolver out and fire a shot at him. One lands in his right thigh and Harley falls over from the impact. This is my second time killing you lately, I say. I hope this isn't a habit of ours. Ken, you are actively working against the Lord, Harley says. Another shot in his forehead ends the scene. The only reason I can surmise Lucifer hasn't stopped me is that he's aware I might try to kill him too. Do I still have access to the power I took from him in 2015? I rushed through my grocery list this morning and didn't question what Murray told me before I went to Earth One, which was obviously not real. Who the hell was Steve Sebastian? I focus on Freudland and imagine him fading into a light flame, much like burning paper slowly shrinking in the heat. His remains transform into ash, so I guess doubt is a powerful tool. I could have done all this without a gun or the Porsche, but it felt so much better that way. These powers open too many doors. Makes me sound like some urban fantasy protagonist with a name like Eric spelled with a K. Why am I still concerned with how my life is a series of deaths all leading up to my own? I've killed enough people for this no longer to phase me, yet I can't help questioning it all. Hardly deserve to die no matter what side of good versus evil spectrum I reside on, but Veronica was somewhat innocent. Sure, she later murdered her mother and gave birth to Satan's child that grew up to destroy New York, but her life ended as if I made a chess move. I'm coming off the road leading to Harley's property when there's an unmistakable black mark in the sky. Before breaking, I look to see if anyone is behind me. There are no cars except mine anywhere. The trees stop moving in the wind, moving downward as if God cuts the atmosphere with a scolding blade. Someone emerges out of the opening. Speeding directly at me, Birch should be in South Carolina crying over killing his daddy while not getting any from that woman using him to steal shit. I'd get out to greet him, but my door won't open. I try imagining it magically disappearing and nothing happens. I'm jolted forward by the impact of him landing on the Porsche's hood, and I keep hoping the car won't flip over even as the sky becomes the ground in my line of vision. Even with my seatbelt on, my head hits the roof. Since it's Birch and he's the figurehead, I can smell the color purple and see waves of clear green. He pulls me out and rolls me onto the blacktop. I have the urge to clear my throat, but something's lodged there. When I try sitting up, my upper back locks up. I am not the fucking time police, Ken, Birch says. Yet the Lucifer of this timeline is sending me messages that you're fucking everything up. So I get to die again, I ask. More humiliating than before, huh? You can't die, Birch says. I killed you over 200 years ago. Then why am I not in heaven? I ask. There's nothing harmonious about this place. Sometimes people aren't ready to go. 
Birch pulls me up and my pain ceases, as if I was never injured. We're no longer outside standing next to a decimated Porsche. Instead, there are stacks of library books standing in rows around us. As I'm trying to acclimate, I recognize Steve Sebastian sitting at a table reading a newspaper. You're done, Birch says. If you don't stop holding on to Earth, you're going to be stuck here until the world ends. I can tell you from personal experience it's going to take some time. Are you dead too, Birch? I ask. Still hoping to go back and fix everything? I tried going back and fixing things, Birch says. Several times. Lifetimes even. Unlike you, I'm not due for heaven for a long time. Alright, how do I end this? You need to resolve what's keeping you grounded. Getting revenge and killing the same people again apparently does not quench my soul's thirst for resolution. What issues am I holding on to? Everyone in my life betrayed me in some way. Even my college roommate Leslie used me to a degree. My greatest resentment lies with my father. After I thought he was dead, I took control of my life, yet still operated as someone's puppet. I wasn't born a murderer, but that was my destiny before I was even conceived. How? I ask. Let go of your animosity, Birch says. Don't worry about the people you hurt, Ken. Consider the pain you retain because it drives you. Birch turns around to leave, but I catch his wrist. Wait, I say. The stuff Murray told me about us being fictional characters. We are fictional, Ken, Birch says. Then who was Steve Sebastian, I ask. You saw him too? He's probably not the same Steve Sebastian I met. Murray said he was the author, but the name on the books was Patrick Attaway. Attaway, Birch asked. I've seen that name before. Right next to my mother's headstone, actually. If he's the author, then where is he? Earth One, I ask. No, Earth One is fictional too, Birch says. It hasn't been the same since I was there in 2015 either. My presence caused another timeline to open there. How do you know Earth One isn't real? I ask. It's like the author's other world or something, Birch says. The Trinity couldn't happen in the real world, so it can't exist in Earth One. There's a Steve Sebastian that lives on Earth One, but he's a journalist. The one I met said he was a journalist, I say. All right, enough, Birch says. The more we talk, the less likely you are to finally move on. But is that even my choice? Ken asks. I have to leave, Ken, Bert says. I can't stop him from dematerializing and simply not being there. For a moment I stare at the floor, noticing the fibers on top of the carpet from all the people who've tread on the material since someone laid it down and inhale while trying not to think. That carpet isn't real. My thoughts aren't, aren't, aren't mine. If I'm a fictional character, my existence is finite, yet I feel as if I will be here for eternity. But if the author stops writing, then I cease to exist in the moment. <laughs>